Well, good evening, everybody. For those who are visitors, my name is Gavin. Kim and I are the campus pastors here. Glad that uh, you're here visiting. Students, we're glad you're, you're here during our chapel service. Uh, I got a question for you. Have you ever been in a fight before? Okay. Wow, there was lots of yeses on that. Okay, I didn't expect that many yeses. Uh, have you been, and I don't mean just like a verbal fight, and I don't mean like a tussle or like a wrestle. I mean like, have you ever actually been in a fight before where you have had to punch somebody? Yes? Okay, all right. I expect some names on our mentoring sheets this next week. I would like to have a chat with you. So I grew up with three brothers and we fought all the time. Who fights with their siblings? I was waiting for a call well. I knew that was going to happen because, because it's very much like my childhood growing up too. I fought with my brothers all the time. So I grew up in a family of four boys. I am number three in the order of the four boys. And from number three, are you number three as well? Where's the third third in the order of your family? Doesn't matter if there's three or four or more. Yeah, number three is okay. You're number three technically too. Yeah, okay. So uh, four boys, and from oldest to youngest is just over five years between the four of us. So we were all like really close in age, okay? We were all kids together at the same time. We were all teenagers together at the same time. We were all young adults together at the same time. We were all in the same season of life together at the same time. And so uh, my family dynamics, uh, I had a single mom raise the four of us boys. And we lived in a specific kind of neighborhood. And we were known around our neighborhood as the Briscoe boys. And the Briscoe boys would fight all the time. Like all the time we fought. Because we didn't have a male father figure in our house, there was this constant jostling back and forth, trying to earn the spot of alpha male in our house. Oh, yeah. Not to say any of this is healthy. I'm just saying this was the reality in the Briscoe household. And the uh, oldest of the brothers, when we all hit the teenage years, he was actually the shortest of all of them. There's a, there's a couple other sibling combos here where the oldest, the Flamins is where I'm looking at over here. The oldest is the shortest. Uh, and that was the case for the Briscoe boys as well. The oldest was the shortest. And I actually, when I hit uh, junior high, became the tallest in my family. And so, like, we were known for the Briscoe boys, but I was known as the tallest of the Briscoe boys. And I was also known as the garburator of the Briscoe boys because I just ate basically anything and everything that came in front of me, I would eat. Like, there was no such thing as leftovers in the Briscoe household. That didn't exist with four teenage boys. There was no such thing as leftovers. And I remember the day when I became taller than my uh, two older brothers, where now I no longer received hand-me-downs, but I got the brand new clothes from the store before they got it. Yes, even as teenagers, we did hand-me-downs, okay? Uh, In the neighborhood that we lived in, we just used whatever you could get at that time. And so we had these like identifiers about who we are, the, the oldest, and then there was the funny one, which was my brother Darcy, and then there was the tall one who ate everything was me. And then there was my younger brother, Kelsey, who was the youngest, he was the baby. We had these identifiers, and we would fight all the time. But there was a code. There was one unspoken, unwritten code that we never broke. When we fought, you could never punch in the face. Anywhere else, doesn't matter. 
punch away. Anywhere else, elbow away, knee away, stomp away, kick away, does not matter. Sit on each other, wrestle, fight, doesn't matter, but you could never punch in the face. Anybody else have that in their family code? You just don't punch your sibling in the face too much, too far, okay? So we were known in our neighborhood as the Briscoe Boys. And again, we fought all the time. But if anybody ever picked on one of us, it was like, well, no, I can beat this kid up, but you're not allowed to beat this kid up. And so we always stood up for each other. And so we had this reputation. We had this label. And even that moved into our school as well. Like we were known because we all went to middle school together. We all went to high school together. And so there was this grouping of the four of us. And you can get those labels in high school. You know the labels that I'm talking about? Like the stereotype groups, right? What are some of the stereotype groups that are in middle school or in high school? Shout them out. What are some of them? What? Jocks. Nerds. (laughs) Why is that one always funny? But it just is. Okay, what else? Drama kids. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. What are some other ones? Popular kids. What? Mean girls. Mean girls. Skaters? Oh, yeah. West Kelowna, there was a ton of skaters in West Kelowna. Oh, my goodness. What? What was that one? Hockey boys, jocks. That's the same category. There's another specific one. No? I pushed a button. I pushed a button. There's still another one that I'm waiting for that, that uh, I want to hear. The bad kids? Math. Math club. Yeah. Yes, there it is. Actually, the, the potheads, the smokers, the ones who do drugs. Right? The stereotypes, they're there. In my high school, and probably like yours too, again, not healthy, just reality, Uh, there's a rift between some of those groups, right? Like there would just be some animosity between these groups. And I, you would never know it by my physical physique now, I was part of the jock crew, okay? And I was into sports and athletic. And because I was the tallest, I was always picked first. Oh man, middle school and early high school was a dream. Grade 11, grade 12 hit real fast. And I was never picked first for any sports team after that. But I was in grade nine, grade 10, I was the tall one in my class. In grade eight, I was this height at 187 pounds. My rugby coach loved me. And I was the tall one in the jock group. And there's the animosity of different groups. And so you kind of rift each other and push each other and push buttons. And the smoke crew, like the guys who smoked cigarette, there was just always like a cigarette would always uh, have this, like, against each other. Like, I don't even know where it came from or why, but it just existed. We just didn't like each other. Not healthy, just reality. So there was this one day in grade nine. The group of us, we were hanging out, and a guy in our group got into an argument with a person who was part of the pothead smokers, okay? And so at lunchtime, there's this shoveling, there's shoving around, wrestling match, getting at each other. And just because I was the tallest guy and the biggest guy in the group, it was always sort of like, boom, Gavin's going to be the one to get in there because he always fights with his brothers, so he knows how to fight, and so he's just going to get in there and beat the kid up. Well, I didn't do that. 
okay? This is before I met Jesus, by the way. Not healthy, just reality. And what happened was, is there was this tussle. And then the kid that was pushing my buddy, I got in his face and he said, Friday, you and me, we're gonna fight. Well, the alpha male inside of me can't let that go. So of course, yes, it's on. It was the next day, Friday after school. We'll just call the guy Brian because his name was Brian. And Brian and I didn't just get into an argument, didn't just get into a tussle. We met down at the bottom of the embankment off the property of the school, and we had a fight. So this is how it went. My buddies and I, because we were the jocks, went to the um, change room just beside the gymnasium and got all piped, like pumped up, pushed each other, slapping my shoulders, slapping my back, just getting jacked. Silly 15-year-old boy stuff, okay? <laughs> yep, 15-year-old boy stuff. And then we step out of the gymnasium and we get off the property and we go down the embankment looking for the smokehead crew. The smokeheads, yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, there's going to be the dozen of them, the 15 of them, there's, you know, the 10 of us. Okay, Brian and I, were going to go at it. As we like turn around the fence corner and uh, look over, there's like 300 students in this area here. <laughs> Word spread real fast, <laughs> okay? And again, I didn't really have anything against Brian at this time. It was just the immature, young, 15-year-old alpha male in me who couldn't say no. I had to say yes. I had to stand up for my friend. And so I see all these people, and I'm like, what the heck am I getting myself into right now? And so we go down to the bottom of the embankment, and surrounded by hundreds of people, it was the first and the only time I ever connected this fist with another person's face. And we went at it. Now, it doesn't matter that I beat Brian in this fight. That's not the point of the story. <laughs> but there was this moment where it's like, I don't really feel like I want to do this, but I'm kind of forced to do this because I'm a jock because he's a smokehead, because there was a tussle, because of this immature, unhealthy, alpha male syndrome that I had, I just had to, because of these labels. You ever feel like just because of a label, you have to live up to somebody's expectation of you? You ever feel that? You ever feel like just because you're a part of a group, or you're a part of a family, or you're a part of a system that it's like, this is who I am. I just, I have to be this. Because this is what is expected of me. This is the title of the Briscoe boys. It's expected of me. This is the title of the big guy in the jock group. This is the title of the garburator. This is the title that I just have to live up to these labels and to these expectations. And we're going to talk a bit about labels and expectations in the book of Romans tonight. And Paul specifically talks about certain labels that we place over ourselves or that the world has placed over ourselves and contrasts them to the labels that God has given us. So uh, I want you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And Paul has something to say about labels. He has something to say that, that they can control our lives. They can control our actions. They can control our decisions. Well, this is who I am. I must act this way. 
And so we're actually gonna uh, read out of Romans chapter six, verses five to 11. I'm gonna step back a little bit from the scripture that we read uh, downstairs this evening. Uh, And we're gonna read this, uh, and I need your help in reading this, okay? So let me start, and I'll give you the cue as to when I want you to help out. You good? Great. This is the NLT version. It says, we have been united with him in his death. We will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And I want help with the word power. I use this translation because of the specific language used that I want to highlight. So can we go to the next slide? And I have squared out, oh, it didn't work in the transition from mine to this. That is lame. Because it's way too ugly, we're just going to go back to the other one. Just, just, there we go. Uh, there's five times it says the word power. And when I say uh, the word power, I want all of us to say it together out loud. You with me? Can we practice this? One, two, three, power. And I want like a deep drawl to the word power, okay? Like, like get, get some depth to that word. Get some breath to the word power. Power, okay? Here we go. We have been united with him in his death. We will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. Somebody say amen. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Somebody say amen. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. In our sermon series, In God's Sight, Kim talked about that we are looked upon as right in God's sight. Opened up our our series last week and used uh, very appropriate language like justification. Used very appropriate language like granted access into the presence of God. Justified, made new, right, in his sight. Again, Paul is speaking to the Christians in Rome and predominantly Gentile believers, although there were Jewish believers there as well. And he presents God's plan of salvation to the Christians in Rome. He says, we know this. This is what we know, that Christ died for us on behalf of us so that sin might lose its power in our lives. See, for both Jew and Gentile, it became this new life through Jesus. It was no longer about the the ethnic background of being from the lineage of Abraham. It was no longer about that. That we are all sons and daughters of Adam. And because of his one act of sin that brought death into our world, the, the new Adam, the second Adam, because of his one act, brought salvation for all those 
who believed. So my first point tonight is about sin's power. Sin's power over our life. We know about the power of sin. Because of the law and the, and the requirements of the law, as we read downstairs, and you can read through much of chapter 6, if you get bored of my sermon or later tonight, you can read about Paul's description about the law and the requirements of the law and how that brought about sin into his life and into our lives. But he says the gospel message is that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Somebody say amen. I like some verbal affirmation when I preach. And if you don't give it to me, I'm just going to tell you to give it to me, okay? <laughs> I've learned that about myself and I'm good with it. We are no longer held under the law. The penalty of sin has been paid. The wrath of God satisfied because the act of love and sacrifice, death and resurrection of Jesus. For all people, Jews and Gentiles. Under the new covenant set for and paid by Jesus, the blood that he shed. For all those who believed are now reconciled to God. What a great word. Turn to your neighbor and say, reconcile. It's such a great word. It, it means to reconcile to friendship. It means this forgiveness and restoration. Meaning that we were once enemies to God and he now calls us friends. He has reconciled us back to himself. Paul is essentially saying, we were dead in sin. Now we are dead to the power of sin. Somebody say amen. Amen. Hey, hey, the block worked. Oh my goodness. Just because it was up a little higher on my PowerPoint, but that's fine. This is how God sees us now today. For all those who believe. We were dead in sin. Now we are dead to the power of sin. In our passage that I read from verses 5 to 11, it says this, that we are united with him. No longer slaves to sin, in verse 6. That we are set free, verse 7. In verse 8, it says we live with him and that we are alive to God. That's some, that's some good truth right there. Elsewhere in chapter 6, it says this. Now you have new life. New life you have. You live under the freedom of God's grace. You are free from your slaver of sin and become slaves to righteous living. You are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Slaves of righteousness. Kind of a funny term, isn't it? Like, do you see the language that Paul uses in those statements, set free, new life, freedom because of God's grace, slaves of righteousness and slaves of God. You think that freedom and slaves, slavery, don't really go together. And yet Paul is using them together and using this tension that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to God and slaves to his righteousness. How can you be both free and a slave 
at the same time. So slavery was was a uh, regular part of life, a fact of the Roman Empire. Uh, For the Greeks, for the Gentiles, and historically too, we know in uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament that slavery existed as well. So the terminology made sense in the context in which Paul is writing. It made sense. Today, it is an icky word in our language. Because of our history with it, it includes very much to do uh, with race and racism. It has very much to do with an economic status of those who are very wealthy to those who are very poor. And that wasn't primarily the case with slavery in the Greco-Roman world and the history of the Israelites as well. Like it did play in it, but it wasn't the predominant part of it. Like there were two different kinds of slavery. There was uh, bond slavery and debt slavery. Debt slavery is like a hired help, almost like an employee, but a little bit more than just an employee, where they would commit themselves to their master to pay off and eventually have their debt paid off and can be freed. Like like for many, it was actually a very good financial decision to go into slavery if they were in debt so they could pay that debt off and no longer be, be held to their debt and they would be a free person. So it was actually a smart economic move for some of them. And in the Hebrew law, every seven years, the, the slaves were set free and all debt was released. So there was some good choices in it. Again, not our context of slavery. So we got to contextualize this and think about the words in which Paul is speaking here. But the other slavery is specific bond slavery. And this is the word that Paul uses here in chapter six. The Greek word is doulos. And it, it means to be a slave. It's the same word that he uses in, in chapter one of the book. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I am a bond slave. In some translations, it says servant. And I just don't think servant does does justice to the depth of the meaning of this. Paul is saying as a bond slave, I I am my master's slave. We think, whoa, that's, that's harsh. But he's using this language that as we commit as we are obedient to the Lord and his righteousness and to God, we actually find true freedom. True freedom bound to our master. And that's essentially what Paul is saying in the later half of chapter six is he's talking about binding. He's talking about being bound to God bound to righteousness. We are no longer held captive being bound to sin, but we are bound to the Lord. And it's funny, in the the later half of chapter six there, Paul actually uses the words, I'm using slavery as the example because you're just not smart enough, basically is what he says. Like, Like your futile minds cannot understand the concept of being bound to righteousness and bound to God. So I'm gonna use slavery as the example. Commitment, full on, full life commitment bound to the Lord. So he uses slavery. Flip the page over to chapter seven. He uses another example to talk about binding and commitment. He uses marriage. And Paul takes slavery and marriage and he uses them together to say, this is what I mean. I think you might have a bit of an unhealthy view of marriage. (laughs) And he says, it's like a woman who is bound to her husband and her husband dies and now she's free. 
Okay, Paul, where are you getting at with this? <laughs> a, little, a little uncomfortable. We're talking about slavery and, and being widowed. This isn't the prettiest of language. But he's getting his point across. He's ultimately talking about being bound, binding together, united, committed in obedience to the Lord. Because true freedom, true freedom from God isn't this ability to just get to do whatever I want? As he poses the question, can I just keep on sinning? No. He says, yes, we're no longer slaves to sin, but in my freedom, I make the choice and submission to be slaves to God. We're no longer bound to sin in the law, amen? We are bound to righteousness, bound to God. So in chapter 7, specifically in verses 4 to 6, Paul says this. It's up on the screen. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the? Of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united. Let me say that again. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer held captive to its power. Now we can serve God. Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit. Do you see the language that he uses? Can we go back to that? There's some, some specific words. It's not the word power, but some specific language that Paul uses in this section of his passage in chapter 7. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died. You died. And now you are united. And after the word united, he no longer uses the word you anymore. See what he says? We can produce a harvest of good deeds. When we were controlled, he pluralizes it, okay, as a resulting. But now we have, in verse 6, we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer held captive. Now we can serve God, not in the old way, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. When we were bound to the law, we were isolated removed from relationship, not just with God, but with people and with the world. And Christ has reconciled our relationships with him. He's reconciled our relationships with people. And he's reconciled our relationships with the world. Like earthquakes and floods was never God's plan. And he has a plan of reconciliation to bring a newness to the world as well. We can produce good. We have been released from the law. We died to it. Now we can serve. He changes the language from you to we because God's plan is for all his people to be a part of his family. Is his heart and his desire. That's who we are in God's sight. It's not help is on the way. No, it's help is here now. Amen? 
Help us here now to reconcile us to him. It says uh, in a new way of living in the spirit. What's living in the spirit? How do you express yourself by living in the spirit? By the? Of the? There we go. What is it? Let's list them out. There's nine of them. Can we do it? Hey, well done. Well done. And just like Dave said on Monday, Peter says in his second epistle, like you have everything that you need to live a life of godliness. Like you have it. Peace, it's all yours. Kindness, it's there for you taken already. Joy, you have it in you. Self-control, you may doubt it, it's there. You have it at your disposal, all yours. Kindness in abundance. Might not feel like it some days, <laughs> but it's there. This is the point. The power that once held us captive is gone. And we live under a new power, a new empowerment in the Holy Spirit. And you might be thinking, Pastor, I've heard this before. Like, I've heard this message before. I've read this passage before. Okay, I'm no longer held captive to the power of sin. Check, got it. I'm no longer a slave. I'm a slave to God, a slave to righteousness. Okay, got it. But why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I still struggle with sin? Habitual sin is still present in my life. How can I not be bound to it then? Feelings of shame and guilt. Self-loathing of of feeling like I just don't measure up. Okay, I'm free from it, but why do I still feel like I am held captive to it? Power to overcome sin? Come on, really? Self-control to withstand temptation? Sure thing, boss, right? Ever been there? Paul understood this struggle of sin. He understood it well. Oh, what a wretched man I am. That's what Paul says. Right after he talks about the power over sin, that we're no longer held captive to it. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Paul understood the new power of gained access and justification, made right in God's sight, living in the spirit, and there's this tension and struggling with sin. So in verse 15 of chapter 7, he says this, I don't really understand myself. I like the NLT's version of that. Anybody there? (laughs) Ever been there before? I don't really understand myself. (laughs) For what I want to do is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And he basically repeats himself in verse 18. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. 
But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean it's sin living in me, but it's not me who does it? See, Paul is talking about labels that we give ourselves. Slaves to sin and slaves to God. And there's so many times that whatever label that we find ourselves under, we feel like we have to live according to the expectation of that label. The Briscoe boys have to be tough. The jock has to fight, has to stand up, has to be the alpha male. Oh, there's food left on the table. Gavin will eat it. So I eat it because I'm expected to eat it. And there's these labels that we place on ourselves. And there's labels that have been placed on your life. that You feel like you have to live according to those labels. And labels are a dangerous thing. They can be a good thing, but they can be a very dangerous thing. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying it's, it's not him who is sinning. Sorry, it's not him as a sinner. It's him who has sinned. God doesn't look at him as a sinner. He doesn't put the label of sinner on Paul's life. There is sin in his life. But God looks at him not as a sinner, but as right in his sight. It's like, like I really like the game of golf, but I am not a golfer. Like I can go golfing, but I am not a golfer. I went skydiving today, but I'm not a skydiver. You know what I mean? Like people can teach something, but that doesn't mean that they are a teacher. Does that make sense? I can run but I am not a runner. And it's the same thing here. I have sinned, but God does not label me a sinner. He does not look down upon me as a sinner. He looks down upon me as one who is reconciled from an enemy to a friend. He looks down on me with a label as redeemed, as forgiven, as loved, as a child, as one who has gained access. He looks down upon you and says, I see you as right in my sight. So why do I still sin? I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. I don't want to do wrong, yet I find myself doing it anyways. God has an answer to that too. And I want to finish with this. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Paul understands this tension of living as a slave to God, as a slave of righteousness, yet still being stuck as a slave to sin, yet, yet we don't have that power over us anymore. He understands that tension of living in the now and the not yet. He understands the tension of spirit and flesh. And many of you feel that same tension. All of us feel that same tension of the shame and the guilt. It's like, I'm, I'm not good. I feel like I'm stuck over in this slave of sin and I can't get myself to the label of slave of, of righteousness. I feel stuck over here. 
How do I break the power of sin? And this is my challenge for you tonight. We'll finish with this. In 1 John chapter 9, a great scripture verse to memorize. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us and cleanse us. He's faithful to do so. Amazing, right? Confession brings forgiveness. Confession brings cleansing, salvation, and forgiveness into our lives. But why do I still feel shameful? James says in chapter 5, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, confession to God brings salvation, forgiveness, and cleansing. And confession to one another with prayer brings healing in our hearts. And so tonight, I want to give an opportunity for you to bring some confession to the Lord. Tonight, I want to give you an opportunity to bring some repentance, to to bring yourself to the altar and to repent before the Lord and seek forgiveness and cleansing because he is faithful and just to do so. And we can consider ourselves free from the power of sin. And then I want to challenge you to confess to one another and to pray over one another because the prayer of a righteous person brings power to live in the Spirit. So would you stand with me? The band's going to lead us. They'll sing a bit gently. But I don't really want to respond just by singing. I want to use our own words. And if you find yourself turning around on your chair and kneeling so you can confess to the Lord, that's a great posture to be in. If you need to find yourself here up at the altar and kneeling or lying or sitting, that's a great posture to be in confession and repentance to the Lord. And he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you and cleanse you of your sin. But then I want to challenge you further to go to someone and to confess. A trusted confidant one person, two at most. We don't need to spread it around to everybody, but to share. And there is such a freeing feeling of healing that takes place. I just want to finish this with with this last story. A couple years ago, uh, my son Seth, he was three years old at the time, and we borrowed a book from the library. And we used it during the summer, and we brought it with us camping. And while we were camping, Seth, in a time of boredom, ripped the pages out of the library book. (laughs) And I wanted to give him the chance to confess to this. Both Rebecca and I knew that it was him who ripped it. Simeon was an infant at the time. We knew it. It wasn't us. It had to be him. And so I said, Seth, did you rip this book? And he said, no. And it was like the first time he ever lied to us intentionally. Oh, it hurt my heart so bad. And I think, oh man, how often have I sinned and lied and it must hurt the Lord's heart. And for about 20 minutes, he would not tell the truth. And we just kept like pushing, asking, 
being patient with him. And you could see his body tense up. And then when he finally said, yes, I ripped the pages, he broke out in tears and he wept. And he cried on my shoulder for like five minutes. And I said, Seth, what's going on? What's going on in your body right now? And he's like, it just feels so good to tell the truth, is what he said. And Rebecca and I sat with him and we wept and we cried and we held him and we loved him. And that is the image I get when we bring confession to another person. It is the Father who loves us and cries with us. So, so are we good? You hearing what Paul is saying? You hearing what the Spirit is saying inside your heart? So let me pray and then we're going to open up these altars. Well, first and foremost, Lord, I confess that you are king of my life, king of this place, king of this room, king of this campus. And I confess, as Paul has too, oh, what a wretched man I am in need of your grace and mercy. And on behalf of everyone here, Lord, I know we are all in that place of realizing, Lord, we are in such need of you. In such need of of your grace and of your mercy. Thank you that you, Jesus, have satisfied the wrath of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you have justified us in the sight of the Father because of your act of love, because of your death and resurrection. Your blood shed speaks a better word over our lives. And so, Lord, this is our confession to you. Spirit, would you bring conviction into our hearts that we would confess to you and receive cleansing and forgiveness and conviction in our heart to confess to one another and pray with one another to see your healing take place in our lives. Thank you that you label us as right in your sight and not as sinners. These altars are open. You can turn around and and kneel, whatever you need to do. Let's respond to to the Spirit's leading.